Well, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to John 19, verse 16. We're continuing our series, The Road to Resurrection. And today that leads us to this passage that is sobering. Prepare yourself, prepare your heart for what we're going to read today. As you turn to John 19, verse 16, let me just start with this. In the Old Testament, there's this story that was absolutely captivating to the Jews in the ancient world. It's a story about Father Abraham from Genesis 22. And it's a story that's captivated Jews. It's captivated Gentiles, too, for centuries. Not just because it's fascinating. It is a fascinating story. But also because it's cryptic and a little weird. Genesis 22. Tell me if you've heard this before. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons said, Father Abraham. Y'all heard that before, right? Brandon's going to close with that song after we're done today. (laughs) Yeah, we know that song. But before Father Abraham had many sons, he had one son, a beloved son, a son born to him in his old age. And he loved that son dearly. And God gave Abraham this bizarre command. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, take him up to a hill called Moriah and sacrifice him there. And not only did Isaac, this son, this beloved son, follow Abraham's instruction and go up that hill with his father, he actually carried the wood up that hillside that would be used for his sacrifice. He carried the own, his own instrument of, of death. And you know, that story puzzled Jews for centuries, puzzled even the Hebrews of the Old Testament times. And the climactic moment of that story is when the angel of the Lord stays the hand of Abraham and says, do not lay your hand on that boy or do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And in that moment, we all breathe a sigh of relief, especially those of us who are fathers who have sons. We're like, "Shoo!" He didn't sacrifice Isaac. God didn't ask a father to sacrifice his son. It was just a test. It was just a test. And God would never do that. He would never have a father sacrifice his own son. Or would he? Or would God do it himself with his own only begotten son? I'm sure you know what I'm getting at this morning. That cryptic story in Genesis 22 points forward to another story involving another father and another son, a son of promise. And it also involved a hill far away, not far from the region of Moriah. And it also involves a son carrying the instrument of his own death. But this time, you might ask, does does the son actually die? Does the sacrifice actually happen? Well, let's see in John 19. Last week, we saw the hypocritical Jewish leaders manipulate and blackmail the Roman governor, Pilate, to condemn Jesus. The Jewish leaders work Pilate like, like puppet masters, and he dances to their tune. And they even utter that ridiculous and self-condemning statement in verse 15. We have no king but Caesar. Remember that from last week? 
They reject the King of Kings, Jesus, while at the same time they disingenuously and duplicitously say, Caesar's our king. Caesar's our king. It's all very tragic. It's all very sad. But this is how God's plan of redemption is brought forth. So finally, in verse 16, after much waffling, after much indecision, Pilate relents and he sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. Picking up in verse 16, you can follow along with me in your Bibles. John says this, so they took Jesus, the soldiers, they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. I want to look at three aspects of King Jesus' life and the final moments before his death. We're going to look at his suffering, his character, and his mission. And then I want to talk application for our own lives as we prepare our hearts for communion. But let's start here. Let's start with the suffering of King Jesus. The suffering of King Jesus. So they took Jesus out, outside the city, bearing his own cross, just like Isaac who took the instrument of his own death. That's what Jesus did, bearing his own cross. And remember now, Jesus has been tried and convicted by Jewish leaders. He's been tried and convicted by Gentile leaders. He's been physically and emotionally abused for many hours now. And part of that abuse involved a flogging. Like I said last week, Jesus probably was flogged twice, once before his sentencing, and then right before his crucifixion, he received that dreaded verba ratio that scourging that oftentimes would leave people dead. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus was so weakened by everything that had happened to him the hours before his crucifixion, he couldn't even make it to the site of his crucifixion. So they had to enlist the help of that man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross for him. And part of that is because the scourging was so horrific that it would rip a man's skin open. It would basically bring a person to the edge of his life, to the end of his death. You might say, it's, that's terrible. It's terrible that they would scourge somebody that horribly, bring that much pain on somebody. Well, in a twisted way, it was an act of mercy. Scourging allowed people to die more quickly on the cross. And crucifixion, if you can believe, was even more horrific than scourging. So Jesus was already nearly dead by the time that he got to the skull to Golgotha and that scourging and the subsequent beating that Jesus received from the Roman soldiers. After all of that, Jesus was a bloody shell of a man. Isaiah 52 verse 14 prophesies about this, that many were appalled at him. Why? Because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So Jesus before his crucifixion was marred already his jaw was swollen his brow was bleeding profusely from the crown of thorns that had been forced upon his head his back was ripped open from the scourging he was disfigured beyond recognition even beyond human semblance and after all that jesus had to carry this crossbeam all the way outside of the city to a place called golgotha golgotha means skull in hebrew um 
The Latin word is Calvaria for skull. That's where we get our English word Calvary from. So Jesus goes to Calvary in order to be crucified. And what they would do in this day is they would have the crucified victim carry the cross beam, not the entire cross, although you might see that in the movies, but just the cross beam. And what they would do is, you know, this person would carry a cross. It was still pretty heavy, you know, 100 pounds, probably something like that. And they would lead them all the way to the place of the execution, all the way to the place of the crucifixion. And when they would get there, after carrying this crossbeam, they would hammer, they would affix the flesh of that person to that crossbeam, either by rope or by nails. We know that it was nails because Jesus later showed them the nail scars in his hands. They would affix that person to a crossbeam. And then they would hoist a man up onto a gibbet that was already there, that was already, that vertical beam was already in the ground. Several feet, they would hoist that person above, above the ground, perpendicular to the ground. And then they would affix that person's feet as well. And, and you know, put him up perpendicular to, just like, just like a fence post. Think of it that way. That's what Jesus did. That's what they did to him. The fact that they took him outside the city is significant because that's what you would do with unclean things in the Jewish world. That's what you would do with the sacrifices even after they were sacrificed. The book of Leviticus is full of items like this. I'll just give you an example. In Leviticus 16, for the day of atonement, you take the sacrifice and you burn it outside of the camp. Take it outside the camp. Take take that unclean thing, take it out. And so that's what they did with Jesus. They take him outside the camp, outside the city, outside of the place where there would be, uh, you know, the, 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 the cleanness of the community, the cleanness of the camp. The author of Hebrews, he picks up on this and he says this, you can read this on the screen. He says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus went outside of the camp to become a sacrifice for us. Jesus became unclean and cursed so that we might become clean and have the curse removed from us. That's what's happening here. Also, John tells us in verse 18 that Jesus was crucified between two others. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, with the Barabbases of this world. Psalm 22 verse 16 says similarly, another prophecy concerning Christ, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 50, speaking of pierced, Isaiah 53 verse 5 says similarly, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, by the way, was written 700 years before Christ was crucified, even before crucifixion was invented as a means of execution. David wrote Psalm 22 a thousand years before Christ. And so what John is doing here in this passage is he's, painstakingly trying to link what's happening to Jesus with the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Isaiah 53 is key, and Psalm 22 is key for John as he's doing that. 
And the probability of Jesus fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies in his life and his death and his resurrection, it's, it's astronomical that all of this could come together in this one person, Jesus. It's almost as if God was directing this whole thing. Matthew calls these two people crucified next to Jesus robbers or revolutionaries. It's the same word that John used for Barabbas, lace taste. They were, you know, they didn't crucify people for thievery or for stealing. They crucified people for inciting insurrection against the Romans. And it was probably Barabbas' place that Jesus assumed between these two bandits. And Pilate wanted to free Jesus and execute Barabbas, but the crowd wanted it the other way, so now Jesus is being crucified like a criminal, with criminals, with transgressors on either side of him. Speaking of Pilate, you thought we were done with that guy, right? You hoped that we were done with that guy. Look at verse 19. So Pilate here, he also wrote an inscription, and he put it on the cross, and it read this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now think of that, the irony of this guy Pilate putting that on the cross, most likely to humiliate the Jews, to mock them, maybe also to mock Jesus. And yet Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews, the Messiah. In fact, he's the king of the Gentiles like Pilate too. Church father Augustine said it this way, said the Gentile Pilate ends up bearing witness to Jesus at his death, just as the Gentile Magi had done at his birth. And the multiple languages of this placard prophesying Jesus' role in salvation, it points to the fact that Jesus' death was more than just for Jews. Verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. Here's a picture of how this inscription might have looked. This is from the Passion of the Christ. Something like that was affixed to Jesus' cross above him. Multiple languages. And by the way, as verse 20 says, Jesus wasn't crucified in some private place, you know, outside of peering eyes. That's not how the Romans would do it. They would do it right on the highway. Take him outside the city, of course. The Jews, they had to crucify him outside the city because it was an unclean thing. But they wanted it done in full view of everybody in the community. This is Passover. People are coming and going on the highway. So, I mean, Jesus, let me just make it relatable for you. Jesus got crucified on I-74, okay? Like a billboard before everybody. Now, why would they do that? That's, I mean, that's inconvenient, isn't it? Why would they do this? Because this is how they're, the Romans in this day would would use crucifixion as a deterrent. If you rebel like these guys, you're going to end up like these guys. Some of you might think, this is a lot of work to execute somebody. Why wouldn't they just, you know, behead somebody or stab them, put them to death? Well, speed wasn't what they were going for with execution. They wanted it to be messy. They wanted it to be lengthy. They wanted it to be a show for everybody to let them know, if you mess with the bull, you'll get the horns. Don't buck the system. Don't rock the boat or else this could be you. Sometimes people would actually hang on crosses for days. Days. Struggling and suffering to breathe. 
And then even after they died, they, their bodies would be picked apart by animals and by birds. That's an effective deterrent for people who had any notion of insurrection against the Romans. Look at verse 21, the chief priests. So there's this placard. Pilate wants to put up there. It says that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And that obviously the, the Jews are upset about this. Verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate, I'm sure, is still seething from the fact that he's been bullied by these Jewish leaders to do something he didn't want to do. So he puts his foot down here. This is his chance to exact a little payback on them. No, no, that's going to stay up there. Jesus, the king of the, here's your king. Here's your king, Jews. Look at what he's doing. Look at his, look at his throne, the cross. Ironically, Jesus is the king of the Jews. And ironically, the cross is his throne. Is there any more precious symbol in the Christian world than the cross He's the Messiah King who was prophesied in the Old Testament, drawing all men to himself, Jews and Gentiles both, by the power of that cross. And he's the King of the universe, Jesus, who suffered for you and me so that our sins might be forgiven. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. That's the suffering of Jesus. You might say, well, how does Jesus respond to this during this whole situation? What does he say? What does he do? Well, actually, Jesus is pretty quiet during this whole time. Isaiah 53 says this. This is prophesied. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then when Jesus finally did open his mouth and speak, what he spoke was meaningful and it was a reflection of his character. You can write this down as number two. Let's look together at the character of King Jesus. Character of King Jesus. We have in the Gospels a record of seven different statements that Jesus made from the cross. These are called the seven words of Jesus from the cross. And you know, four of those statements are found in the other Gospels. You can see these on the screen. Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive, me, forgive them. They know not what they do. Luke 23, 43, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is what Jesus said to one of the criminals that was crucified with him who repented. It's funny that this guy on the cross, this, this criminal, this revolutionary, knew more about Jesus in that moment than just about anybody else who was there. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 46, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus absorbing into himself the full wrath of God, crying out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? Well, there are three statements from the cross that are unique to John, and we're going to see them all in the next few verses. Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. I thirst, John nineteen twenty eight. 
And then finally, John 19:30, it is finished. So let's start in verse 23 and set up that first statement that Jesus makes to his mother and also to the apostle John. Verse 23 says this, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. You know, this would have involved um, Jesus's shoes, Jesus's belt, his outer garment, a head covering, all of that was divvied up by these soldiers. But the tunic, John tells us, was seamless, just like a priest in the Old Testament, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, verse 24, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. You know, men at this time were either crucified completely naked or with the barest of clothing. All their other garments would be the loot of the executioners. And crucified victims were either tied to the cross or, like I said, more gruesomely, were affixed with spikes. So Jesus is up there. And, and by the way, you know, they would bleed to death. That was common among crucifixion because there was so much blood involved. But more often than not, the way of their death was through asphyxiation. Because as, as you have your hands tightened and uh, even affixed to a cross like this, your body starts to sag and it, it closes your cavity to, to breathe. So you have to pull yourself up like this in order to breathe, <gasps> to, to inhale. And then, you know, of course, with Jesus, all of this would happen with the, the ripping of his flesh. So he's, Jesus, I mean, just picture this here. Jesus is bleeding. He's possibly choking on his own blood. He's pulling himself up, trying to gasp for air. And these soldiers, just another day at the office. They're just, you know, who cares about this suffering? They're gambling for his clothing. It's really pretty shameful, except for the fact that this was all part of God's plan. Something that was even prophesied in the Old Testament. I'll get to that in just a second. So crucifixion, crucifixion was horrible. It was horrible. And yet, the pain that Jesus endured was not even the worst part of it. Not only was it excruciatingly painful, but it was humiliating as well. Dia Carson writes this. You can read this on the screen. Beyond the pain was the shame. In ancient sources, crucifixion was universally viewed with horror. In Roman law, it was resolved. Uh, reserved only for the worst criminals and the lowest classes. No Roman citizen could be crucified without a direct edict from Caesar. Among the Jews, the horror of the cross was greater still because of Deuteronomy 21:23. Anyone who is hanged on a tree is under God's curse. In Israelite law, this meant the corpse of a judicially executed criminal was hung up for public exposure, branding him as cursed by God. So Jesus, suffering on the cross, being humiliated in this way, unclothed, and the soldiers underneath him, inflicting this pain, are gambling for his clothes. But, like I said, this was prophesied. It was prophesied a thousand years before this by King David. Psalm 22, verse 18, you can read this on the screen. This is King David. This is King David prophesying, even through his own suffering. They divided my garments among them, 
and for my clothing they cast lots. John, he connects the dots for us in verse 24 when he writes this. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So what was Jesus doing as these scoundrels were gambling for his clothes? Did he curse them? I probably would if I was in his place. Did he tell them they'll rue the day that they ever mess with Jesus? Did he insult them? Did he wield his great power in that moment and make them pay for disrespecting him? No. Like a lamb before its shears, he was silent towards them. You know, I told you a few weeks back that I've often fantasized what it would be like for Jesus in that moment of greatest humiliation to just levitate off of the cross and just do something that demonstrated his great power and just wiped out everybody right there. You know, that would be awesome. Like, you know, Indiana Jones at that moment when they opened the Ark of the Covenant, everybody's faces just melt off. I would love for that to happen right now. What if we read something like that in John 19 and Jesus just melted their faces off in that moment? Well, if we did read that in John 19, we should be terrified because then the atonement for our sins would be nullified. We would stand condemned before a righteous God. Not only that, but Jesus would have been disobedient to God the Father. I don't know what that would cause our world. I mean, that's... Can you imagine Jesus sinning against God the Father? Our whole world would unravel before us. But no, Jesus endured this last greatest temptation. He stayed on the cross. Matthew even tells us in his gospel that he was ridiculed by others on the cross, people that were passing by. Why is he doing this? It's because because Jesus can punish his enemies, he's got to redeem his friends. Jesus stays there and he takes it. And here's what we get instead from Jesus. Not cursing, not insulting, not threatening people. Instead, we get evidence of his character. So the soldiers did these things. John tells us, verse 24, this is what the soldiers were doing. What's Jesus going to do? But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. These four women. It's funny, the the men, other than John, they all ran and took off, right? The women stood by Jesus. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John tells us that there were these four soldiers that were humiliating Jesus. What does Jesus do? He addresses the four people who love him in the crowd. His woman, or his, his woman, his mother, his mother's sister. There's probably a woman named Salome who was the mother of James and John. Also Mary Magdalene who is prominent in the resurrection stories. And then another woman named Mary, the wife of Clopas. And, and Jesus at this time, he's not, he's not cursing these soldiers. He's not guilting people for making him die on the cross. You see what I'm doing for you, John? You lousy sinner. 
See what I'm doing for you, Mary? No, instead he, what does Jesus do in that moment? He takes care of mama. He's the oldest son. He's responsible for her. And in that moment, he says, John, you take care of her. From now on, she belongs to you. You belong to her. You might wonder, why would, you know, why would John need to take care of Mary? Mary had other kids. She had other boys. Well, those other boys don't believe in Jesus. Not yet. They will later after Jesus' resurrection. Joseph was probably dead at this moment. So Jesus entrusts Mary. He entrusts his mother to a member of the believing community. John, you take care of her. Mom, you stay with her. Him. Do you see the character of Jesus in this moment, church? What would you have done in that moment? Crucified unjustly. Suffering unjustly. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to curse when I get a little tummy ache at home. I'm just being straight with you. Would you have been as long-suffering as Jesus was if you were in his place? Thankfully, this is not our cross to bear. One more observation here. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. We see the suffering of King Jesus. We see the character of King Jesus. And then in these last few verses, we see the mission of King Jesus. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put it on a sponge full of, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The fulfilled scripture here is Psalm 69, verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That's, again, a thousand years before Jesus' death on the cross in the Psalter. In that passage, David's describing activities of his enemies. And likewise, Jesus' enemies are giving him sour wine or vinegar to drink in this moment. Also, another possible fulfillment here is Psalm 22, verse 15. My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth, and you, God, lay me in the dust of death. Here's the irony in this scene. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, the source of living water, according to John. We read that earlier in this gospel. Jesus, the source of living water, experiences thirst just before his final breath. And then in verse 30, by the way, if, if anybody tries to tell you that Jesus just swooned on the cross or Simon of Cyrene was crucified instead of Jesus or that Jesus didn't really suffer, I thirst is what Jesus said on the cross. His suffering was real. And part of that involved dehydration. And then verse 30, here, here's the final words that Jesus uttered from the cross. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. All right. What was the purpose of his death? Why should the Messiah endure such offensive treatment here? What did this accomplish? 
What is finished? Tetelestai. It is finished. What's finished? What did Jesus do here? Well, the answer is found in the fuller revelation of Scripture. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. With one massive blow, Jesus Christ destroyed the armies of darkness. Sin, Satan, death. With one impossible act of mercy, he took upon himself our sins and died on that cross so that we would be freed, so that we would no longer be captive. With one final word, he signaled that his work was done and that the payment was paid in full. To Telestai, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus did his work. It's a great story in World War II when uh, the British had their first real victory. It was when they were fighting in North Africa and they finally got the best of this genius general named Rommel. They defeated his forces and they drove his German troops out of Egypt. It was a great victory and Many people thought, well, this is the end. We're going to defeat the Germans now. And Winston Churchill, he gave a speech, and he warned them that there was a long, bloody war that still awaited, that still was in the future for them. And here's what he said about that battle in November of 1942. He said, now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning and I don't know if that perfectly captures Tetelestai, what happened with Jesus here, but that's pretty close. There's a lot that's still to happen. One of the most important things is going to happen three days after Jesus' death, his resurrection. Is this the end? Is this the end of the end of the end? No. There's a lot to come. But this is the end of the beginning. This is the most significant event in human history. Jesus dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. It is finished. It is finished. There's a lot that takes place after Jesus' death. We'll get to that next week. Here's what I want to do. For the rest of our time this morning, before we take communion, I want us to think about how this should impact our lives practically. Because we can have a lot of responses to Jesus' death. Maybe, maybe you have that right. I, th I think we can be angry that this happened to Jesus. Anybody angry in this room? I don't think that's wrong. I will point out, though, that Jesus wasn't angry in that moment. I think we can be heartbroken about what happened to Jesus. And that's right. I mean, it is heartbreaking what he went through. But I just want you all to know that John 19, John didn't write this passage 
so that we would just be angry or so that we would be heartbroken. This is not some sob story meant to arouse your pity. There's a purpose behind this. This is supposed to change our lives. This is supposed to change the way that we live. The Son of God died on the cross for our sins. He endured unparalleled torment on that cross. Why? What are we supposed to take away from that? I'll give you four answers to that question, and then we'll take communion together. How should we respond to Jesus' death on the cross? Here's the first thing. Remember, 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 Harvest Decatur, that Jesus' death was payment for your sins. Remember that Jesus' torment, his physical and emotional torment, was a payment for your sin. If you want to put that in the first person, and personalize it, it's probably a good idea to do that. Remember that Jesus' torment was a payment for my sin. My sin caused Jesus' suffering. Have you ever wondered, you know, why, why do all four of the Gospels have the crucifixion story? All four of the Gospels climax with this horrific story. Why is it recorded four times in the Bible? And then even as you continue reading in the New Testament, there's constant allusions back to the cross, to what Jesus did for us. And even in the Old Testament, there's these foreshadowings. We've already looked at some of those. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, the, the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, pointing forward to Christ's death, Christ's death, Christ's death. Like, why is this repeated over and over again in the Bible? If you preach expositorily through the Bible, you get to Jesus' death all the time. Why? Why is it recorded that often? Because it's the most significant event in human history. And you know what else, Harvest? We need the reminders in this distracted world, what God has done for us. Why do we take communion so frequently here at church? Why do we do it? Why don't we do it, you know, once for all time? We'll just say, okay, we'll do it today. We'll never do it again. I think God knew that we needed reminders regularly, regularly, regularly. What did Christ do for you on the cross? And I think there's a temptation, too, to view our sin lightly, or to think about our sin as less grievous to God than it truly is. Some of you might even wonder, you know, did you have to tell us all that gruesome stuff about crucifixion? Pastor Tony, did we really need to know that? I think you do. I think we do. Because it's a reminder when we're tempted to lust and when we're tempted to be anxious and when we're tempted to hate and we're more tempted to speak out against somebody in anger that Christ died a gruesome death on the cross for that sin so should we tolerate it you know I I've struggled with this before you know I'll just be honest with you I get irritated with Alistair sometimes and I I could very easily make an excuse in those moments when I lash out at him in anger and say you know well that's Daddy's had a hard day. You know, that's just daddy being daddy. Just let it go. And not own my sin. But did Jesus die on the cross? Did he die that horrific death so that I could take my sin lightly? I don't think so. So the next time you're tempted to sin against your children, the next time you're tempted to slander your boss or to deceive a co-worker or cheat your client so that you can turn a profit, just think to yourself, did Christ suffer anguish so that we can sin and 
sin glibly without a second thought. Here's a second thing we need to remember. Remember that we were bought with a price and our lives belong to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? The Holy Spirit's inside of you. Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I think one of the greatest errors that's perpetuated in the American church is what I'll call easy believism. It's, it's the idea that salvation doesn't really cost you anything. You know, people treat salvation like it's some kind of arbitrary transaction, some consumer transaction between us and God. God, you do our part. I'll do our, I'll do our part. You know, got that fire insurance in my back pocket. We're good to go. And that's not how the Bible describes it at all. Get, now let me be clear about this. Salvation is a free gift. You don't earn it. We're clear on that. Salvation is a free gift from God. But I want you to know this. There are costs associated with following Jesus. And one of the costs is your own life. Jesus owns you. And you belong to him. Yes, salvation is free, but there are costs. That, let me give you an example. This might help you. You know, when you, when you conceive a child, is there cost? I mean, is, is that a, a free thing? Nobody came to my house when Sonny got pregnant and charged us something for that. That'll be $3,000, Mr. Caffey. No, it, it was free, sort of. But are there costs associated with raising a child? Some of y'all know that all too well. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, similarly, salvation is free. It is. It's a free gift of God. And we receive it not by anything that we do, not by any works, but there are costs associated with that. And we are not our own. We belong to Jesus. And we surrender our lives to him. We, we live for him. We belong to him. Let me get a little more personal here with some of this application. I'm going to get, I'm going to make everybody really uncomfortable here now, okay? So brace yourself. Here's another way that we should respond to Jesus' death on the cross for us. Number three, we need to remember that Christ's death makes unforgiveness a non-option for believers. Y'all with me? Pastor Tony, you don't know what that person did to me. You don't know how they wounded me. Seriously? Have you read John 19? Have you seen what Jesus did for you? Colossians 3.13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive others. Pastor Tony, you don't know what that person put me through. I can't forgive. I can't let it go. Yeah, you can. And you must. You must. Could what that person put you through be any worse than what Christ went through on our behalf? Jesus said himself, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Here's what I found about unforgiveness, bitterness, same kind of thing. 
That's an addiction. It really is. It's something that gets in your soul and you, you love it and you coddle it and you kind of hold it and you, you stroke it. It's like your little pet thing. You got to kill that thing. In light of what Jesus has done for you, you got to kill that unforgiveness in your soul. You might say, Tony, well, forgiveness is a process. Yeah, start the process. Continue the process. In light of what Christ has done for us, there's no room in the Christian heart for bitterness, for unforgiveness, for grudge holding. Everybody with me? Love y'all. Pastor Tony loves you. One more thing. How should we respond to Jesus' death on the cross? We need to remember that life is short and eternity is forever. Life is short. Eternity is long. Jesus Jesus endured unparalleled physical, mental, and emotional anguish on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. But you know what? Harvest Decatur. He's going to come back and he's going to reign forever and ever. Jesus was 33 when he died. 33. I turned 40 last year. He was seven years younger than me when he died. But his kingdom lasts forever and he will reign forever. The question here, we're about to take communion, okay? So those of you who know Jesus Christ, you're like, amen, hallelujah, that's my savior. Good, let's remember Christ as we take communion. But there might be somebody in this room right now, you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. You're not a believer. All of this is just ideas or possibilities. When Jesus comes back again, let me just tell you, he's not gonna be tortured by anybody. He's coming to rule and to reign for eternity. And you're either on the right side of that for eternity or you're on the wrong side of that. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of that when Jesus comes back. Do you know this Jesus? Have you repented of your sins and embraced by faith what he did for you on the cross? John 19, it's right here for you. Believe it. Believe it. Let's bow in a word of prayer. If you've never done this before today, now is the day of your salvation. Why not do it today? Why wait till tomorrow? The Bible says if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. So if you've never believed, if you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, let me encourage you to do that right now. To just say from the depth of your heart, I am a sinner I am a sinner. It was my sin that forced Jesus to go to the cross. I'm no better than those Romans gambling for his clothes underneath him. Jesus, forgive me. 
Jesus, receive me. I repent of my sin and I believe in your death as payment for my sin. I believe in your resurrection, your victory over death. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For your goodness to us. We are not worthy, Lord, of what you went through. But you love us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your patience with us. Jesus, as we remember now your sacrifice, God, help us to remember these things. Maybe above all, that our lives are not our own. We are bought with a price, and we belong to you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.